Thank you for joining me in relation to this bonus episode of my podcast series. And in this episode, I talked to Dr. Sandra Lean. Now, she is someone, for those of you who don't know, who works tirelessly to try and help people in Scotland, where she lives, and also in other parts of the UK who have been victims of miscarriage of justice. She's written books. And she talks about how she became involved in this work, why she became involved. And in particular, she talks about the Luke Mitchell case. She explains what happened to Luke. And for those of you who don't know, as you're listening to this episode, uh, Luke is in prison. He was 14 years old when his partner, Jody, was brutally murdered. And he was the number one suspect from the start and there are loads and loads of controversial issues regarding how this case was investigated and dealt with and he was convicted and has spent a number of years in prison. So she talks about that case and she also talks about the Stephen Downing case because what she did was she listened to my second episode where I spoke to Don Hale about Stephen Downing and she noticed there were some striking similarities, quite a few, uh, in relation to that case and Luke's. So although they're 30 years apart, there are all these issues that time and time again keep on coming up. So that's obviously a really uh, important thing, but it also highlighted the fact that we're not learning from the past. And so we talk about lots of things in this episode. Some things are quite controversial and we don't hold back, but it's important that we talk about these issues, as I've said all along with this series, because miscarriages of justice are happening here in the UK all the time. And we all have a responsibility, including myself as a criminal defence solicitor, to make a difference and ensure that the mistakes don't happen again. So please let me know what you think about this episode uh, and I will share on my Twitter the links to the Channel 5 documentary that she was involved in that covered Luke's case uh, and other things as well. Uh, and this is Dr. Sandra Lean's story. Hi, Sandra. I wondered if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi. Yeah, first of all, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's really good to be able to get the word out to more people. Um, I'm Dr. Sandra Lean. I have been working on wrongful convictions, uh, miscarriages of justice for just over 18 years now, mostly voluntarily. Um, I, it's not something I've done as a, a career for money. Um, I just I, I discovered something was going terribly wrong and decided to look into it. Um, you can't unsee what you've seen. So then I felt compelled to try to help to do something about it. And before you started to get involved in miscarriage of justice, what, what, what were you doing? What was life like before then? I ran a natural health centre. I was an alternative therapist um, and I'd set up my own business with a number of other therapists working on a self-employed basis. Um, my girls were 12, 11 and 12 at the time, um, lived in a little local village and I thought that was going to be my life. Um, for the next foreseeable number of years until a local murder in 2003. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that murder. I know that lots of people know who you are and we've, we've heard 
the story of Luke Mitchell, but I wondered if you could just explain a little bit for those people who don't know uh, what happened. Uh, Luke's girlfriend, they were both 14, and Luke's girlfriend was supposed to come down to meet him that evening. So, so we had two villages about just over a mile apart, and Jodie was supposed to come and meet him, but she didn't turn up. And then her mum contacted Luke after Jodie had failed to return home for her curfew. And that's when they discovered nobody had seen her since tea time. So Luke set off up the path that Jodie would have used on the understanding that if they didn't find her on the way, he would go to her mum's house. The grown-ups would then decide what to do next. Unbeknown to him, as he was making his way up, three members of Jodie's family, so her sister, her sister's boyfriend and her gran, had started to come down from Jodie's end and they were waiting for Luke at the top of the path before he came out onto the street to go to her mum's. The grand suggested a double check and on the way back down, Luke's dog alerted at the wall. She, she darted over to the wall, she was standing up, scrabbling at the wall. Luke said, that's, or Luke thought that's an alert of some sort, not knowing what she was alerting to. He made his way back to a V-break in the wall where it was slightly easier to get over because it's about eight feet high, this wall. Climbed over, saw Jodie's body and called out, I think there's something here. Jodie's sister's boyfriend then went over and went exactly the same route as Luke, saw what he saw, and then the gran was helped over. She insisted on seeing what was there. And that, at about... 25 to half past 11, 25 to midnight on the 30th of June was what started all of this. And I know that it was a brutal murder. Very. And she had been stabbed multiple times. But from the outset, from what I understand, having watched various um, documentaries and so on, and what I've read, Luke was automatically a suspect. Absolutely. The, when the police arrived, they, they made an assumption, and we see this in other cases where the police have a story in their heads, almost from the off. So the assumption was that Luke had found the body and the other three searchers had arrived after he found Jodie. So the other three searchers were taken up to a car park to mingle with other family members, while Luke, and Luke alone, was first asked to go back over the wall to show the policeman where Jodie's body was, he wouldn't do it. And then he was taken to the car park, put in the back of a police car, and within 20 minutes was driven off to the police station. While the rest of the family were still in the car park, uh, they hadn't had their phones taken, statements taken, nothing. They were just all standing around talking to extended members of the family. While Luke was taken off to the police station, stripped, his body was photographed, they took a swabs and blood for DNA. He was 14 years old. And at that stage, did he have an appropriate adult with him? They'd called his mum and said, make your way to the police station. By the time she got there, he'd already been stripped and put in a paper suit. And then during the next phase, the questioning, which went on right through the night, um, so they got him there just after midnight and he didn't leave him. They didn't leave until about seven o'clock the following morning. But although his mum was there, she has always said they had her with one officer at one side of the room and Luke with the other officer and the police doctor and everything at the other side. So so she was not able to 
I suppose, supervise or, or even participate in what was going on with Luke because they separated them, even though they were in the same room. And I know he denied, obviously, committing the offence because he was very clear and adamant yes. throughout and he said that he was at, at home um, with his mum and his brother at, at the yeah. time um, and she wasn't believed by the police. But there was no DNA evidence that linked him to the murder, was there, or any forensic evidence whatsoever? No, I, th- I think that's one of the really interesting things. From the off, they didn't believe his mum and his brother. And yet, from the off, there was no forensic evidence. The, the initial eyewitness evidence that we now know they had pointed to a guy following Jody after she left her home who could not possibly have been Luke. And they wow. swapped that later for a completely unreliable eyewitness statement, you know, one, one that, that didn't describe Luke and Jody. So you've got all this all this very, very strange, instead of stand, standing on the evidence they had and following it logically, it was almost like they were going, oh, no, that doesn't fit if we're going to make it him. Let's not look at that. Let's look at this instead. And, and how, can we, how can we present this here? as suspicious. And I know there was forensic and DNA evidence, but not linking Luke Luke to the crime, but there was, for instance, forensic evidence found on clothing worn by the victim, which was to do with her her sister's boyfriend at the time. Um, And they sort of brushed that under the carpet and said, well, that is because she was wearing her sister's top at the time, or jumper or whatever, and that, that's why it was there. And there was also a condom found at the scene with sperm, which was quite fresh. Yeah, the, the DNA, there were a number of unidentified male DNA profiles on the clothing and, and in, at the crime scene. The, the person who left the condom wasn't identified by DNA at the time. So presumably right. it wasn't in the, the database. Yeah. But three years later, when his DNA was put into the database in relation to another matter, they realised that it was it was his semen that was in the right. condom from 2003. Um, the defence tried to bring that back in at appeal, but we, we actually had the advocate deputy saying at appeal that it was no match whatsoever. It was the Crown <laughs> who gave them the information that it was a match. And yet, at appeal, he got away with saying it was no match whatsoever. To a lot of people, that just won't make any sense whatsoever mm. to come to that conclusion. But it that's what's that happened. Sense. And there was a bike, wasn't there? Or some people on bikes, including Jodie's deceased cousin? Yes. So, um, round about five o'clock. So the timings in this case are, are really difficult because they kept changing. Initially, Jodie was believed to have left at 5.30. If she'd left at 5.30, because of all of the other evidence, Luke couldn't have been the killer. Then it was changed to 5 o'clock-ish, but they still had a timing problem. So they had to change it again to 4.50. Now, at 5 o'clock, Jodie would have been on the path. If she left at 4.50, she would have been on her way down the path and they claimed that she was murdered at precisely 5.15. So we've now got these two boys on a moped. They come through a local... Uh, tool hire place and it's Jodie's cousin and his cousin so so right 
not Jodie's cousin, the second one. And we're seen coming through the two higher place at closing time. So that's five o'clock. They come up the main road and turn into the path. And another witness sees the moped propped against the V-brake in the wall. Now remember, Jodie was found behind the V-brake. This, this moped is propped against the breaking wall, but the two boys are not with it. They then don't come forward. So on day the evening of day four of the investigation, the police put out uh, an appeal for them to come forward because two hired people have, have reported them. And they come forward, one comes forward on the 5th, one comes forward on the 6th, and the media on the morning of the 7th said they'd been eliminated from the inquiry. There's no DNA back yet. They've been eliminated. We later found out they lied about the time they were on the path to remove themselves from the time where it was claimed Jodie was murdered. But they did that before it was known publicly what the time of the murder was going to be claimed to be. And then we found out later still that one of them said his gran, so Jodie's gran, mm-hmm. and another relative had told him not to go to the police because he was on the path too early. So there's a lot of sort of background to this and it's hard to cover it in such a short space of time. But there are potentially other witnesses and or suspects um, that sort of weren't looked into properly because they had this, as you said, this this sort of tunnel vision, this mindset that it was Luke and they weren't interested in anyone else. Yeah. Now... The other thing was that I noticed was, to, was sort of trial by media because before oh. he was even arrested, which was several months later uh, after the, the murder, everything was in the paper, wasn't it? You know, his picture and, and so on. And because he was into, I don't know, um, goth type music, that kind of thing, they had painted this sort of picture that he was a sort of devil worshipper, something like that. It is. It's actually slightly worse than that because he wasn't into goth type music. Oh, he really? Dress okay. as a goth. Um, Jodie's sister did, and Jodie was starting to take on some, she was 14, you know, my girls yeah. do the same Exper- thing. Yeah, you experiment, um, don't you, when you're a teenager? They, they turned Luke into a goth for, for media purposes. And if you look back, if you look back at some of the, the media coverage at the time, there's this blonde guy with a bandana. That's not goth gear. No, no. it's not. It's, it's, it's sort of sporty gear, if anything. Yeah. But this idea that they, they published his photo um, and, and had stories out in the public domain. Leaving no doubt that Luke was the only suspect. They insinuated, 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 and by the September, so the murder was the last day of June, by the September, they'd thrown in the towel and they were saying he's the only suspect. It's difficult to comprehend, especially for me as as a practising lawyer, and I I don't practise in Scotland, so I'm not a fan with that system, how someone is ever going to get a fair trial if at the age of 14 everything's sort of documented before they've even been charged. Yeah. You know, how are people going to be able to have an open mind when they're looking at that case? There was a very interesting development after after Luke was arrested and his mum and his brother were both arrested on charges of attempting to pervert the course of justice. Charges that were later dropped, but they were all arrested at the same time. Big fanfare in the media. And two Scottish newspapers named Luke that evening after he'd been arrested. So they're carted off into court because obviously once 
proceedings have started, they can't be named, and I had never seen the, the media thing interpreted this way. The judge ruled that it wasn't contempt because proceedings hadn't started yet because Luke didn't appear in court until the following morning. Now, if you think about it, they could name everybody between when they're arrested and when they appear in court. They had never seen it interpreted like that, but that's how they got away with it. But, but ultimately, even though they might have got away with the contempt, I mean, how can someone decide it's going to, that there's ever going to be a fair trial when... As we said, you know, he's been in the media, his name, his photo, various stories for months and months and months yeah. leading up to, to a trial. And then, OK, he then can't be named after he appears in court. But, you know, mud sticks, everyone would have yeah. been made aware. Everybody in this media knew who he was, who yeah. he existed. So he had his trial and, and obviously was convicted. How long has he now spent in prison? Uh, he was first incarcerated on remand in April 2004. Mm. So 18 years, 17 years, can't count, not 21, 17 years. Yeah, just over 17 years. And I know that you, we were saying before we started the podcast that you'd listened to the episode that I did with Don Hale yeah. and how there were striking similarities between what happened to Stephen Downing and what happened to Luke. Over the years of doing this work, I've found there are patterns, there are similarities in all of the cases. But to look at Stephen's case side by side with Luke's, I, I made a list of comparisons, two pages long. Wow. Of, these cases are 30 years apart. So but yet there are these similarities. I wondered yeah. if you could just share those similarities to the listeners, because I think that's just, just fascinating. Like you said, they're 30 years apart. Yeah. The time's in theory, have changed and moved on. Well, but yet, they haven't. Have you believe, yeah. So, so they have things like, they were both the immediate suspect because the police made assumptions from the off. Um, they both believed initially they were just helping police with an inquiry. They had no idea they were suspects. They both should have been covered in blood, but weren't. Both were taken straight from scene to, to give a police statement and had police officers spreading negative stories about them while the investigation supposedly is still going on. Both were told just admit it. And in both cases, the investigating officers had their story about what they thought happened before they actually had any evidence. So there's there's just a few, nothing to link them, either, either of them to the crime. Um, experts manipulated by the police. Potential witnesses not spoken to. The clothing left unprotected at the scene. Jodie's body was actually left out overnight in the rain with no tent, no covering whatsoever. And by the time the first forensics officer had come out and left because they couldn't get over the wall. So by the time the second forensics officer got there at eight o'clock the following morning, the clothing and other evidence had been gathered up. So he said it was it was not an ideally managed crime scene. I think that's that should have won understatement of the year. Not ideally managed. That's um, an understatement, like you said. It, yeah. it sounds. So yeah, we had this thing with the and, and the cop who goes to the phone box going, "What do you want me to do? You know, you've left me here yeah. forever." And in Luke's case, they, they just they just left it all out in the rain, including Jodie. She was fourteen years old, found naked, brutally mutilated. And they left her body out 
uncovered overnight. Disgusting. I, I imagine that people listening to that, like you said, would be pretty horrified to say, but release, because you know, this is someone that's tragically killed. And regardless of who is the person who actually committed the offence, they should have respected yes. the scene, but also respected her and yes. her family and made sure she was was carefully taken care of. And you're right, that, like you said, there's so many similarities between the Stephen case and Luke. One of the interesting ones, I think, is that the bit about statements and timings and how they should have been compared. Because if you take one set of statements and they say one thing and you find another set of statements and they don't match up. And in, in Luke's case, I'm talking about things like um, the search trio's timings. Because if you look at the timings they gave, there is no way they could have been at the path before Luke got there if they'd left from where they said they left, which immediately suggests they were closer to the path mm. than they said they were. Now, I'm not saying they were. I'm saying that's what the statements suggest, but they were never compared with the other timings, the other phone calls, the other statements to say, hang on, that that's wrong. That's out by about 20 minutes. And as you know, with Stephen's case, that was one of the key things was yeah. the timings of when he was at the cemetery and when he was seen leaving to get his lunch yeah. Um, yeah. or his bottle of pop or, or whatever. And when he returned, that wasn't properly sort of, there wasn't a proper timeline yeah. drawn up. Um, and if they had done that, then it would be clear that Stephen couldn't have committed the offence. Uh, and likewise, I'm sure with Luke, um, what other similarities did, did you, was there any others that you felt sort of really stood out between the two cases? Oh, the whole moving the goalpost thing, we spoke about that earlier. Oh, yeah. oh, no, it wasn't. It was that time. No, it wasn't. We'll have to change it to that because that doesn't fit. The whole moving the, the, the goalpost thing. Oh, yeah. So we talked about the DNA of other people being there and, and in Stephen's case, someone else's palm print. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you look through, through these, there must be... There must be 20 or 30 of them. Just all this, uh, witnesses lied about the time, intimidation and harassment. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about intimidation and harassment. And that question, why? If they're convinced they've got the right person, why intimidate and harass people asking questions who just want to be sure? It's something that I found really striking in all the cases that I've sort of looked into for this podcast series, this idea of intimidating, like you said, witnesses. Like, ultimately, surely, if, you, if you're if you the police, you just want to get to the truth. You just want to find out what happened and make sure that the right person's punished uh, for what they've done because someone should be in prison for a considerable period of time yeah. for this murder. Uh, but like you said, it's got to get you've got to get the right person. So why intimidate witnesses or act in a certain way? I, I, I find really difficult to comprehend and understand because it's not like you're connected to, to the deceased or, no. or the uh, suspect. You're just wanting to get the truth. And, and that's something that is quite frightening in, in obviously the two cases, like you said, but in quite a few of the cases that, that we featured. Yeah, yeah. I think as well in, in Luke's case, a lot of these witnesses were kids. They were, they were 14, 13, 14. And some of them were dabbling in cannabis and some of them were going places their parents didn't know they'd been because they're teenagers. How easy is it for the police to terrify these kids? You'll say what we want you to say or else. Well, we're, we're, 
we're 18 years down the line now. Those kids are not kids anymore. No. They've probably got their own kids. Yeah. And they're the ones that started coming forward saying, I want you to know what they did to us. We have reports of witnesses at the time who tried to give statements and the police didn't want to know. They took the name and said, we'll come back and never did. So we have managed to gather information now that and that came as a result of the Channel 5 documentary. Yeah, um, I, I saw that documentary. I thought it was an outstanding documentary and I, I don't know if, if people haven't watched it but are listening to this and I hope they do afterwards because it's it, it brings everything to light. And I thought one of the things that was really interesting as well with that documentary that they had the two previous sort of detectives um, who are now investigators look into the case yeah. afresh and they came to the same conclusion as you and others who have supported Luke that it, they don't think it was him and that it was someone else but that things weren't done properly. Um, tell us a little bit about, so, so you obviously that's how you became involved in this sort of work and what and, and why but well, I suppose answering the why question what what made you decide to become involved in this case? My my girls, my eldest attended the school behind which Jodie was found. And my youngest was going up to that school from primary school after the summer holidays. Initially, the, the hysteria in this area, it was, it was ridiculous. It's, it's, it's not a big area. A series of, of small um, villages. And it, it was just hysterical. It was crazy. And I started to think, hang on, either they caught this lad red-handed or there's something, there's something weird going on here because all this gossip and all this stuff and, and the lad is just out there living his life he's not been arrested and as the weeks went on and he's still not arrested and he's still not arrested I'm thinking they've got all this stuff because it's in the papers but he's, he's just out living his life so, so that initially just felt strange to me I had no background in this work whatsoever but I was worried that if they'd gone after the wrong guy then the real guy could strike again that was that so was they could potentially hurt your children, yes, or others within in in the community, yeah, and that was sort of at the forefront of your mind. What and then, I, then I kind of I had to know for sure because if it was all being lost in the hysteria, just the thought of what happened to Jodie as a mum, the thought that that might happen again because they were looking in the wrong direction, I could not stand it. I was like, no, no, I need to know. So, did you become involved before the? He was even charged, or was it's, it after he was convicted? No, I became involved um, within probably 10 weeks of the murder, maybe slightly less than that. Luke's mum found out my taking it, and she put a note through the, the door of the, the Natural Health Centre asking if I could help. You know, right, contacted right. her and said, I, I know nothing about this stuff. You know, I, I don't know how I could help you. And, and she said, nobody's listening. If I had a pound for every time in the last 18 years, people in those circumstances have said that nobody was listening. Nobody wanted to hear. They had their own idea. They, you know, they, were, they were going their route. And how many of them actually gave up on the police investigation? I'm talking about families here. I said, you know what? They're going to go their, their own way anyway. This will all come out at trial. They'll be right. shooting for what they are in trial. Yeah, this idea of the trial will, will resolve things. Yeah. 
so you became involved that right at that early stage. And then I know that since then you've gone on to study and, and help others. Tell us a little bit about what you've done since becoming involved in Luke's case. In 2006, so, so Luke was actually convicted in the January of 2005. And throughout that, that year, the following year, I had begun to discover other cases that, that seemed very similar to Luke. And I contacted these people. I, I looked at their websites, I looked at the campaigns, I looked at... Because now, now we were on the, what do we do next? He's been convicted. Contacted a lot of these people and, and they, were, they were willing to share their knowledge and their information. And as a result of that, I wrote the first book, which featured seven cases of wrongful conviction of where, you know, whether people believe they did it or not, the convictions were not safe. The investigations were rubbish. The evidence was not there. I believe, as a matter of fact, that the people involved in that first book were innocent rather than the technicality of the conviction. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, I understand. Yeah. So that then started this process of people finding me and asking for help. And I discovered really, really quickly that the Scottish and the English legal systems are different. So whilst running a natural health centre, I need to learn both legal systems and what the differences are so that if somebody from Scotland needs help with this, they can do this, this and this. But if they're from England, they need to do that, that and that, which that uh, it was crazy for a couple of years just trying to cram all that in. And yeah, I, I tried to help as many people as I could, looking at case papers, looking at circumstances. It became over, overwhelming. Very, very, very quickly. No, I, I can imagine that. I mean, how many people have you tried to help approximately, would you say? Do you know, I, I can't even put a figure on it. It's, it's in the dozens. Wow. And and talking about the two systems, briefly, I, I mean, they are so different. When um, I went up to Mojo and um, I spoke to Ewan and, and I did a podcast episode with Jimmy Boyle, and I had to sort of learn, obviously, a, a bit about the Scottish system. And I found it fascinating how different the systems are in some quite key areas, like the number of people who sit on the jury yeah. and the other thing with, you know, this simple majority verdicts and also the three verdicts, of, yeah. you know, not proven and so on. I found that fascinating because we're all part of the United Kingdom, yet. <laughs> it's pretty different but also I know before when we first spoke you you were saying to me that I, I realise it's not in place now but at one stage they could speak to someone for six hours without them having access to a lawyer or a, a parent yeah they, these were they were called section 14 interviews and they allowed the police to take anybody even even kids away and interrogate them for six hours, with no access to a legal representation. If there was a responsible adult, if there was one, they were not allowed to intervene in any way, shape or form. They didn't speak, they didn't didn't intervene, they just sat there. So so they'd have been as well not being there. In Luke's case, they, they did the, the three cops, one in, one out, you know, all of that, lying, like just outright lying. We've got your DNA on our brand. No, they didn't. We've got all these witnesses no. saying you were wearing your green army shirt, but describing you to a T saying you were wearing your green army shirt. 
Fast forward to the trial, or, or the second arrest rather, and they're now suggesting that they have all these witnesses describing him to a T in a parka jacket. Where did all the witnesses to the, the German Army shirt go? And how did they get replaced by all these witnesses to say he was in a parka jacket? So they were just lying and lying and, and there was nothing to stop them. There's a pen, pen, pen. Was that being recorded when they were saying those sort of things? Yes, yes got transcripts. Yeah. Wow. So how did they ever justify that? How could they ever justify it in a, in a, in a trial? Because presumably they would have been cross-examined. No, it was the strangest. So let, let, me, let me go back a bit. They, they put a liaison officer in with Luke's family from day one. And Donald Finley tried to say that basically it was entrapment. You know, she she hadn't, they hadn't told Luke's family that she was an investigating officer. So the family thought she was there right. to help them. Donald Finley tried to bring this out at trial. And it's, it's you know, you're ripping your hair out reading these trans, these transcripts because they just keep coming back saying, well, I would have thought it was self-evident what her position was. And, and he says to them, but did you explain? Well, it would have been self-evident. But did you tell them? Well, it would have been self-evident. It is so frustrating because they're not lying, but they're not being truthful either. No, and and, and so deal with that when when you're saying you've got all these things like DNA on someone's bra and so on, and you're saying it to a 14-year-old child at the end of the day who is being grilled, that is so I can't even think of the words but it's so wrong um because you like you said if you've got that evidence then of course you need to put to someone what you've got you know that's the reality I, I don't think anyone can object to that but if you're just making things up as you go along but then that isn't right um and you know I've had a scenario like that myself as a practicing lawyer where that happened to a juvenile where they didn't have a completely different scenario but they didn't have what they said they have um and i've had that before in many cases where they where they do that and, and it's actually it, it, it shouldn't happen no whatsoever because you get someone who's vulnerable um and they might say god they've got this on me they've got the dna on the bra oh i didn't do it but next thing you know they do what stephen downing does or something like that and they confess yeah yeah it, it's interesting um at appeal the appeal judges agreed that the behaviour of those officers in the, the Section 14 interview was outrageous and to be deplored. Their words, outrageous and to be deplored. But that no miscarriage of justice had occurred because Luke hadn't confessed as a result of their outrageous and deplorable behaviour. It's, um, yeah, best say no comment, I guess, to that. But <laughs> what, what, what would you say, I mean, are there any other striking differences you found when you started to look at the two two systems? Because you said it took a while to get your head around it, understand? Yeah, I think the things that you mentioned, the, the, the different jury numbers, the different verdict, the Section 14 interviews themselves, not entirely case-related or law-related, but the way we're allowed to deal with the media when it comes to working on these cases and what we can release um, from case papers. So, so, for example, you know, I've seen lots of cases um, I've actually helped a few of them where they've set up a website and they've put up transcripts mm -hmm. and statements and, and what we can't do that we can't do that we're very very limited to and I know you were telling me that if you do do that it's a criminal yeah. offence yeah. yeah if you do that 
um, and obviously you can go to prison. In terms of the other work you did, you you, you do because I know you're you obviously had to study the law and, and other things, and you you know, and, and then obviously you wrote your book. I mean, what piece of advice would you give to people who um, are maybe trying to help someone who is a victim of a miscarriage of justice? It could be a family member, but it could be a professional even. Yeah, the first thing, especially if it, if it's if it's people who are new to this, examine your own assumptions. Yeah, when I did the PhD, um, I looked at the, the 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 idea of confident ignorance. People believe, or or people mistake their beliefs for factual knowledge. I believe I would have this right. Turns into I would have this right. I believe police would not be allowed to do this. Turns into police would not be allowed to do this. You need to step back and realise, yes, they can. doesn't matter what's written down about what they can and can't do. They can and they will. And they'll use everything you say to them against you or against your loved one. Everything. So, for example, Corrine, in, in the confusion, she's running up to the police station, looks in the police car, they stop on the road to tell her that they've got Luke in the back of the car. And in, in the mayhem, she hears, Jodie's dead. Right. And, and she's totally shocked. She goes, Jodie's dead? And they drive off and leave it in the street. When they come back to take her statement later, there's no question mark on Jodie's dead. To make it look like she already knew before speaking to Luke that Jodie was dead. And how could she have known that if Luke hadn't been the killer? So, so this is the thing that I would say to people. Know, know your enemy. Know what they can do and do not assume that they'll play by the rules. Do not assume that what you've been told is right and fair is what will actually happen. Because I wouldn't be sitting here 18 years later with all these cases if it was being done properly. No. And could you, if you were to say, if you had a wish list, which is probably impossible because... I haven't sort of <laughs> preempted my questions, but um, of say three things that you would change about the Scottish system that would mean that there would be less or potentially less miscarriage of justice. What what do you think needs to change? Wipe out the entire police organisation and start again. And 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 in what way would you start again? I mean, what what do you think needs to change? There has to be a culture of openness there has to be a willingness to say we've made a mistake there has to be the, the attitude of police officers themselves and I, I, i'm not speaking from opinion my personal opinion here i'm speaking about the the last couple of um investigations into police scotland independent mm-hmm. investigations the culture of covering up for each other the culture of discussing their statements and getting them to jive with each other before they write them down, all covering their own backs. I'm sorry, that's not what they're there to do. They're there to investigate. And if we could change the culture from convictions at any cost to a search for the truth, those two things, we're never going to wipe it out completely. It's a human system. It's prone to human error. But those two things, a new culture that comes down heavily on covering up for each other and, you know, not being totally honest 
when, when it comes to the investigations and dropping this, this absolute pursuit of convictions at all costs. It would knock out a big, big chunk of wrongful convictions, I'm pretty sure. Well, maybe what needs to happen, I don't know, because you said there'd been independent, you know, that was an independent opinion um, of, of the Scottish police system. Maybe sometimes there needs to be some sort of committee where they speak to people like yourself uh, and others who do this sort of work just to ensure that, you know, steps can be taken so that, they, that there is that change. Because As a general rule, they don't want to speak to me in Scotland. I imagine they don't, but, but actually, as in they don't because, you know, they don't like the criticism. But actually, if they listen to it, it's constructive. You know, it's not saying that every person is in the same boat or every person's the same because it won't be like that. But what it's saying is culturally things need to change because ultimately they owe that to the victims of the crimes as much as to the people that are wrongly convicted and, and wrongly accused. And I, I'm not I'm not about pointing fingers and throwing blame and everything else. That that does nothing, it achieves nothing. I want to see justice. I want to see real justice being achieved. And that can only happen if we change the way things are being done. So so I'm not here to go, oh he did this and she did that. No. It, we know things went wrong. We know things keep going wrong. If we could look, bring them all together. I've been talking about this for years. Bring them all together. Look at what went wrong in each case. Find the similarities. There you'll find your culture. There you'll find your your ways to go forward to improve things. But we need the will for that to be done. We, we've yeah, and it's, it's interesting you, you say that because when um, I was with Mojo and with Ewan, he said a similar thing. He was sort of saying that if there was a plane crash, the aviation industry would look into that and try and work out, oh, this is a disaster, what caused it? And they would look at, you know, the minute detail and get to the bottom of it as much as they can do. And the same with a miscarriage of justice case, that that's what we need to do. We need to be looking at these things. We, we want things to change. But if you're not prepared to do that and accept that you're going to have to, like you said, hold your hands up at times and accept it, because no, no one's perfect, like we all said, is it's, it's prone to human error. Um, but but it's interesting that both you and Ewan have come up with that. And the same with Mike O'Brien, you know, this and, and Adrian Stone, who I interviewed, where they, they want proper judicial inquiries or, or inquiries in, into these cases to sort of, so that we can learn. And make sure that the culture changes and there's less less victims of miscarriage of justice and also the perpetrators are apprehended and, and sent to prison because the reality is is as we sit here speaking there is a good chance the person who did kill Jody is out there and like you said is is a number of years older and could have, been, could have committed further crimes of a similar nature or could be committed further crimes of a similar nature. Quite often the criticism of my support for Luke's case is that there have been no similar cases in Scotland since Luke was convicted. Well, for a start, that's entirely untrue. There have been many. But secondly, we're only, we're only a hop, skip and a jump to the English border. They don't have to happen in Scotland, you know? I can, I can get across the border from where I am in about an hour. 
Yeah, and that's me out of Scotland. So, so this idea that oh, there, there's none happened, none similar happened in Scotland. Yeah, it's crazy. Let's let's look because that's another thing. There are cases where there are very similar murders, and the convictions are questionable in each of them. And then you're thinking, oh, what if all three of them were actually committed by the same person? Yeah. And these three individuals have just been easy to drag in, chuck it at them. It's a worry. Yeah, absolutely. And that that is is the point, like, um, I know, say, with the Stephen Downing case, that after all this time, I mean, the person, who knows, might, might be dead now, but, you know, um, someone knows the truth. And... It's all well and good thinking, well, we can brush this under the carpet. It doesn't matter. He served 27 years um, for a crime he didn't commit and Luke's still in prison. Well, you know, it's neither here nor there. I get to go home. I get to go to sleep at night and so on. But then it, what would you say if the next thing you know, your child is murdered by the person who committed the original offence? How can you live with yourself knowing that the real perpetrator might be out there? I always come back to the Rachel Nikel case with that one. Yeah. Um, had they not focused on Colin Stagg, Samantha and Jasmine Bissett would still be alive. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. And, and people who say, oh, you're, you're standing up for a murderer. That scenario, that nightmare scenario, that they go after the wrong guy, how do you imagine you would feel if because they went after the wrong guy? One of yours suffered in that way. It, it, there's no, there's nothing could ever make that right. I mean, there's no. nothing could make it right anyway, but when that was the cause, that, that's just horrific. No, absolutely. And and um, thank you so much, you know, for sharing your story and for the work that I know you do to work tirelessly, like so many, like Mike O'Brien and and, and I know Don Hale has in the past and Michelle Discombates and, and lots of people that have been kind enough to speak to me because if people didn't, like you said, have someone sticking up for them to try and make a difference, and, and I know you have to ignore lots of um, abuse and threats and so on to do your job, but if you didn't do that, then some of these people who have been wrongly convicted would, ha- would have no one necessarily yeah. to help, help them. What I would say as well is the community of those of us trying to do this work, so Michelle and Mike and all the others, they are very, very, very supportive of each other. Yeah. So, so when I first started yeah. out, I hadn't a clue what I was doing. I had no idea where it was going. And yet it was these people who reached out to me. I said, come on, keep going. We'll help you. We'll point you in the right direction. Just keep going. So, and all these years later, we're still in touch. You know, we, we still contact each other about all the different cases and everything so yeah it's it's it is a community and sadly it's a growing community because more and more families are finding themselves in the same position yeah that that is what's so sad but as i said if it wasn't for people like yourself mike michelle don and, and mojo and kind of all these kind of people that, that have been kind enough to share their their stories then things are never going to change. Um, but but thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. much. Thank you so much for, like I said, 
allowing this opportunity just just to get the word out there, to get more information out there, because the more people that learn, the more aware the public yeah. really can become. That Absolutely. Really... It's not just America that has yeah. a broken system. Tragically, it's ours as well yeah. in many ways. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Sandra Lean for talking to me on this podcast episode. It is very important to talk about current cases as well as historical cases. And until we learn from the past, then these sort of things are going to continue to happen. I'd like to thank all of my guests who have been involved in this series and the people who might not have spoken on episodes, but have helped me. Because without their support, this series wouldn't have happened. And of course, I'd like to thank everyone around the world for listening to this series and sharing the podcast with their friends, family, and everyone and anyone around the world. So this is the end of this series, but I am currently planning my second series. And I'm gonna be talking to lots of different people uh, about uh, miscarriage of justice cases and as I said in the last episode in terms of when the series will come out um, it will come out next year hopefully in the spring and I'd just like to say one more time thank you to Dr Sandra Lean and thank you to all my guests in particular Mike O'Brien for what he has done to help me make this series.